This podcast is being sponsored by the Moshe family. If anybody would like to help support the show or to sponsor an episode, please email svaramchatter at gmail.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svaram Chatter podcast. In this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor Cedric Cohen-Scali, who is, uh, teaches uh, Jewish philosophy at the University of Haifa. And we'll be discussing the Abarbanel or Abravanel. And uh, his new book uh, came out in Hebrew a number of years ago, but it was just recently um, published in English. It's called Don Isaac Abravanel, an Intellectual Biography uh, by Brandeis University Press. And the Hebrew one, I believe, is Merka Zalman Shazar. So uh, thank you, Professor Cohen Scali, for joining me. Thank you for inviting me, uh, Nachi. My pleasure. So why don't we start off, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Okay, so I was born and raised in uh, in Paris from a Jewish uh, secular family, um, very politicized uh, in the uh, 60s and 70s. And um, like many Jews uh, from this period, in the 80s, there was some kind of a return to Judaism by my mother especially, and also my father in some way. And we became more and more uh, involved. Um, I, through my study of philosophy, history of philosophy, and, uh, um, and my family also, um, in uh, Jewish sources, in Jewish history. And uh, this brought me slowly but surely to mix my uh, interest of uh, um, history of philosophy and history of Judaism, uh, Jewish history, history of Jewish thought. And um, I decided to make a shift in some way in my, in my life and move to Israel by the end of the 90s. Uh, I arrived in, in Israel uh, to make there my PhD and I studied under uh, Professor Menachem Lauberbaum at Tel Aviv University and was at the Hart, uh, Shalom Hartman um, Institute and uh, profited very much from uh, the new uh, Israeli intellectual atmosphere and research and tried to figure a way between what I learned in France, uh, history of uh, modern and Christian philosophy and um, and what I was beginning to learn and to uh, dwell in uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem, in Tel Aviv, and uh, Abravanel uh, was just the perfect match for me because he was between two worlds uh, in some way, between a Christian world, between philosophy. And uh, of course, between uh, rabbinic Judaism and within rabbinic Judaism. So I, I, my professor uh, Menachem Lauberbaum proposed me to to check if uh, Ravenel was good for me, and uh, I I read uh, him and I read books about him, and I became enthusiastic about uh, the figure. Uh, being myself uh, half Sephardic, half Ashkenazi, so 
I felt that I have done my duty with uh, Hegel, Kant, and uh, the the big um, German philosopher. And now I was to I had to do something for uh, the Sephardic soul in me, and uh, that's uh, that's what brought me slowly but surely uh, to Abravanel. And uh, then uh, I had uh, I was on the. I was following Abravanel. I was uh, I lived in Portugal, in Spain, in Italy to to learn him, and that's maybe what is specific about my approach. Not so much from the perspective of uh, standard uh, Jewish uh, thought. Uh, does he belong to that uh, strand of Jewish thought or to another strand of Jewish thought? But really to try to connect to his way of how he was a Portuguese Jew, how he was a Castilian Jew, how he was then um, a Jewish intellectual in Thousand, thousand Italy. And uh, this became uh, my way to connect history and philosophy, uh, Jewish sources and non-Jewish sources. And I felt that there I could contribute to the research that was already done. And um, that's what I have done uh, by the beginning of the, 2000, the year 2000 until the end of my PhD. And uh, afterward, I developed a kind of broader approach trying to mix Abravanel into uh, an approach of a hist longer history of Jewish philosophy from late medieval period to nowadays. So I'm not only publishing about on the, on the period of Abravanel, uh, but also move to uh, 19th century, uh, 20th century, and and something sometime also the period of uh, Spinoza. So basically, this is. This is my uh, intellectual path from uh, uh, history of philosophy in Paris, from a secular family to uh, uh, an endeavor to mix this uh, um, European background with other uh, sources, with Jewish thought, with Jewish history, and try to make something new out of it. So why and really, you know, when I mean, discuss the when, but I guess really the why did you decide to write a biography uh, about him? Especially there's uh, Benzia Netanyahu's classic biography was written and then you had uh, Professor Eric Lowy's biography. So why was, you know, why did you decide, OK, I'm going to write a biography and it's going to be different th than those? I mean, what, what, what was that decision? Yeah, that's that's a. Um, that's a complicated question, actually, by the beginning. Uh, I I hesitated about that. Uh, I thought it's better to produce uh, case studies, you know, to focus on this different aspect of his thought. Uh, I published the first book about more the uh, epistolography of Abravanel and uh, how we could make sense of uh, the Portuguese side and the Hebrew side. And then I continued. At a certain moment, I felt that I could produce another picture 
from the one that is uh, especially in uh, in Netanyahu because the, the book of Eric Lawi is a of course an excellent book and uh, Eric Lawi is really a f- fantastic scholar but it, it's it's it, it, it is not supposed to be a, a biography it's uh, it's a monography on special and very central aspect of a, of a Bravanel, his relationship to a rabbinic um sources and literature and i felt that i have developed a um a more nuanced approach that was uh, done before mixing the different sides of uh, bravanel trying to show uh, uh, the good part the dark side of bravanel and trying to make a complex figure uh, and I think that that was needed because the biography uh, of Netanyahu, which was uh, certainly an achievement by the time uh, in the 50s, was too ideological. You know, he was trying to see if Abravanel could serve as a political model, as an intellectual model. Uh, and he had very fixed standards, uh, Zionism, uh, his understanding of rationalism. Uh, and this was very old-fashioned uh, for us today. You know, nobody understands uh, now uh, Renaissance as a rationalistic period. It's, uh, it's much more complex than that. For Of course, there are elements, but it's, it's only one aspect. And uh, I felt that um, the biography of uh, of Netanyahu was will always be there, but something else was needed, and uh, that's that's what I tried to do. Okay, so I think we should jump right in. Um, actually, something I'm just going to have to ask you before we jump into the um, is is the, the question that I'm sure you always ask, and everyone's listening wants to know is. But you would say Bravanel, that's what uh, Netanyahu says. And, you know, Lowy writes a Barbanel, as a lot of people call it. Do you have anything to add to the name discussion? Or uh, I, I, I really don't know. Uh, I, fe- I feel that we have so many different writings of the name. Uh, Bronel. Abra Baniel, Abra Vaniel, Barbanel. Especially if you look at the Portuguese sources, there is quite a lot of uh, Barbanel and Broniel. And recently I discovered new documents about Abravanel, and there it was written Barbanel. So I I don't really know. Uh, I, I feel that also I want to say that the difference between B and V uh, in, in in Spanish is not that clear, you know. Uh, nowadays, V is, uh, um, is, is, uh, is pronounced B in, uh, in, Sp- in Castilian and Spanish. At that time, uh, it was, I think, as far as I know, it was pronounced V, but, you know, this is uh, also, I, I feel that the Hebrew name is a transliteration of something that was not Hebrew. 
So then there is a question of the and the because of the pronunciation. Uh, should we make uh, like a Bravanel uh, Barbanel? So he thinks that he is the son of the son of God. Uh, I think that might be a little bit exaggerated uh, to try to make so much sense out of the of the name. But it is also uh, typical of the mentality of a Bravanel. We 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 can learn also from that. You know, he 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 cannot think of himself as being something casual, uh, related to something uh, particular, maybe a town and a region or something like that. But he has to make out of it something very special, which gives him. Uh, prominence and a special role in uh, in, uh, in the history of his community, in uh, in religious history, and so on. That's typical of a Bravanel or a Barbanel. And, and also, there are trends, you know, uh, in the 80s, 90s, especially in the 90s, there was a trend in France and also, I guess, in the States to try to be as close as possible from the Hebrew, from the original, from the Hebrew. And so people began to write a Barbanel to make it feel more Hebrew. But the, the whole question is the name Hebrew. Uh, so that's, <laughs> that's another question. But I, I don't have an answer. Okay. Just had to ask that. Okay. So let's jump right in and you know, start off, I guess, telling the listeners a little bit um, about his biography. And also, one more thing you can add into the name. While you talk about him, you can say, you know, why was it Don? Don Yitzchak, Don Isaac. What's with the Don? Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So, the history of Abravanel, on, of Isaac Abravanel, is, is the history of a family that had for a very long time already the, the title Don. Don meant that you had a special role at the court and in the community. And as far as we know, there is a very strong continuity between the Castilian civilian background of the family, where uh, from, as far as we know, for many generations, the Abravanels uh, played a role as financiers, bankers, traders, merchants. We are not speaking of a rabbi family. We are speaking of people who were dealing with money uh, on a regular basis. This was their uh, this was their job. On the other end, we know already, for example, from Tzedal um, Derech from Menachem Ben Zerach, that the family was very well educated, uh, not only to be good traders, good merchants, but also in uh, Jewish literature. And they were patrons of scholars. And we have uh, examples, uh, we have an introduction or hakdama. Uh, of Tzed al where uh, Menachem Ben Zerach is thanking uh, the grandfather of Abravanel for his support. 
I guess, financial support. And, but it's also, I think, not only paying uh, lips, only lip service saying that, oh, you know, you are a great scholar, but I think that there is something there. And uh, we can trace that the Abravanel family has a kind of a trademark, which is this mixture of uh, economic skills with cultural skills. And the family splitted by the end of the 14th century, uh, a little bit before what is called Xerot Kana, the riots of uh, 1391 um, against Jews in Castile and Aragon. A part of the family converted just a little bit before, and another part emigrated to Portugal. Uh, this was the, the father of Abravanel, Yehuda Abravanel. Um, and the first document we have of the Abravanel in Portugal is actually uh, that uh, very important uh, noble, uh, very, uh, the, the son of a king, the son of King Juan, uh, is saying before he's leaving for a military campaign that if he dies, uh, someone has to pay for him uh, to pay back Yehuda Bravanel, uh, a merchant, a Jewish merchant in Lisbon, for the money that he gave him. So this is the first trace we have of the Bravanel in Lisbon uh, in fourteen in fourteen thirty seven. And this is exactly the same year in which uh, the Itzhak Abravanel or Isaac Abravanel uh, was born in Lisbon. We know very little about his um, you know, childhood and education. Uh, we can reconstruct it a little bit uh, by saying that he had uh, something uh, quite uh, new or more expanded. Let's say that he was an excellent uh, merchant, so he was trained for that. But he was also um, very well um, um, taught in uh, Christian literature. Um, in Portuguese, Spanish, uh, maybe a little bit in Latin also. And he was very well trained in um, Jewish sources, uh, rabbinic, and above all, um, um, biblical hermeneutics and uh, philosophy to Arabic and Jewish philosophy. And this, this is very special. Because the Abravanel were known to be good traders. They had a good education. But here we see that very a lot of uh, thought was invested in this very broad education. And this is really the appearance of Don Isaac. Don Isaac is not only a, a good trader, he is the first good. He's the first trader, a Bravanel trader, that is able to write something that will last for centuries, you know, 
And um, so that's the that's the figure actually of Abravanel. Abravanel is is a, a merchant who becomes an intellectual, a Jewish uh, leader, and how uh, and uh, someone who leads his community through actions at the court in Portugal, but also um, through uh, commentaries, drashot in the Bet Knesset, and uh, many other uh, things of this kind. So in Portugal, we know quite a lot. He was a prominent leader of the community. He, uh, he was involved in... Um, uh, trades with Italy, with uh, with um, Holland, with um, also with the Portuguese expansion in uh, in North Africa and Africa. So he was very much involved in all this uh, kind of economic uh, aspect of the life, and he began he, be, he began to write more philosophy at the beginning. Uh, he has his first tract, Ateretz Kenim, written uh, by uh, the, the end of the 60s. Uh, and this is his first achievement. And uh, by the beginning of the 80s, he's getting involved in, um, yeah, in a kind of plot uh, against the new king, and this brings him to Castile. He has to leave uh, Portugal to Castile, so in some ways coming back to Castile uh, by the beginning of the 80s. And uh, there he will have to start from scratch um, uh, as a political and um, economical figure, uh, but also uh, as a community leader. And this will bring him to write, I think, his major work, uh, his Perush on the Nevi'im Rishonim, on the first prophet or former prophets. And this is an amazing work uh, by any, any standards. Uh, written very quickly, where he uh, he writes about uh, Joshua, uh, Shoftim, and, and uh, Shmuel, and this was really new in his approach. Uh, maybe we'll speak a little bit later on that, but this was really uh, something very new. And at the beginning of of the book, he is saying that. This book was not only written as well, it was also taught in some way. So he had he had a group of people around him. This is what he writes. Uh, listening on a regular basis is someone so, uh, sometimes saying every night uh, his, uh, his commentary. And they say they they uh, told him. You should write that. So I don't. Uh, it doesn't really make sense the way it is. Uh, it is explained, but we know that Abravanel had had in Lisbon also uh, what we call in Hebrew a chug, uh, like a circle 
uh, every week he was giving a lesson on the Morene Vuchim, on the on the guide of the perplexed. So we know that he was very active also orally. And uh, I think this might be also part of the charm of the figure of Abravanel. Um, he is staying quite actually quite for a short time in Castile because he arrives in 83 and in 92 there is already the expulsion. Um, we might a little bit maybe speak later about uh, his role during uh, the period of the expulsion. So I'm not really uh, speaking of that now. But then he arrives in uh, Southern Italy in Naples. Uh, and he will stay uh, in different spots in uh, southern Italy for uh, for actually 10 years, uh, moving from one place to the other uh, and uh, beginning to write uh, an inc- in, uh, something that is uh, really very, very vast, uh, especially if we take into consideration that we lost according to what he said, uh, important works that he wrote. Tzedekolamim, um, for example, uh, yeah, like a, a historical fresco from uh, Adam and Rarichon to, uh, to his period. And, um, but he, he wrote extensively, especially, especially two kinds of books. Um, commentaries on the uh, on the prophets and later uh, on uh, the Torah and uh, commentaries uh, on Maimonides a lot of commentaries on Maimonides so these are let's say a biblical commentaries and uh, philosophical uh, commentaries on the Morene Vuchim especially and he arrived in uh, 1503 in Venice. Uh, he was one of the first Jews allowed to stay there uh, on a regular basis. You know, uh, Jews could, could come to Venice and stay for a day or two to do business, but they could not live there until the ghetto was built. And uh, he was one of the first Jews that was allowed to stay there because uh, the Venetian Republic thought they could make use of him in uh, a very important diplomatic problem they had with Portugal. Venice was uh, rich because of of the commerce of the city with the Orient and with um, India especially. And now the Portuguese have discovered a new road to India. So the Venetian wanted to make an agreement to share, uh, you know, share incomes, share uh, um, the goodies uh, from India and and make price not uh, too low and so on. Uh, so they wanted to make an agreement. You, you, you have to imagine what kind of agreement that was. It's a little bit like an agreement between the United States and China. Like 
And the person that they sent to make it, that was Isaac Abramanel. So this gives you quite a sense of uh, the historical importance of the of the of the man. And uh, he he couldn't succeed because you know Portugal had basically no interest to share incomes with uh, Venice. Uh, but this was the man that the Republic of Venice sent uh, to make to try to find an agreement. During his his last years in uh, in Venice, he wrote also extensively. Basically, he's a very famous, maybe one of the f- greatest achievement of Abravanel, his commentary on the Sefer Bereshit, which is really uh, amazing, uh, an amazing book, uh, making uh, like history of not only of humanity, of the birth of, uh, of Israel and so on. A very, very interesting book. Um, and also, and he finished, of course, his commentary on on the Torah, and uh, he died there uh, in 1508. Was buried in um, uh, in the city near uh, Venice. Um, oh, I forgot the name. Uh, maybe I will. Uh, rem- rem- it will um, come back later. Padua. Padova, exactly. And, and but uh, a few a few months after, this was in mid, all this period in Italy were in the middle of what we call the Italian Wars, and unfortunately, uh, the Kever, the, the tomb of uh, of um, of Abravanel, was destroyed during uh, during the war. So nowadays, we we don't know exactly where his tomb is. There is, I think, a little uh, monument in the Jewish cemetery of Padova for him, but it's, it's not the original tomb of, uh, of Abravanel. Uh, so that's basically, you know, I forgot a lot of things, but uh, uh, I think Abravanel is uh, an anomaly in the, in the Mishpacha uh, in the sense that they were good at producing traders. And uh, now they produce not only traders but uh, Jewish intellectuals. So that's uh, that's a novelty. Yeah, I'm interested. You forgot this, but plenty more, and uh, people can read the book for that as well. Uh, there's plenty more to discuss in him. Let me ask you one thing: um, Do we know anything about any of his teachers, any of his rebbeim? I know maybe I was something. Was he have any connection to Yosef Chiyun in Lisbon? I don't know. He was in Portugal. Was that one of his, or do we know, or we don't know? Yeah, we know. We know. I, as far as 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 we know, and we know there are quite a few quotations from the side of uh, Rabbi Yosef Chayun and also Abravanel, that it is almost certainly that he was uh, one of the teachers or uh, an important figure for Abravanel. We have actually. A responsa from uh, from Chayun to a question that Abravanel asked to to uh, Rabbi Yosef Chayun. So, yeah, this is very probable that we cannot say anything about the type of connection they had, but he learned 
uh, either directly or indirectly from him. And and I I, I, I maybe it's the, the the through this figure we can also um, spot uh, a Bravanel within uh, Sephardic uh, intellectual history. That means that. Uh, Javi Yosef Hayun is an example of what is called Sephardic Iyun, and uh, Abravanel is surely very much influenced by this tradition. And in certain, in many regards, he is an example of that. And um, so, yes, yes, he was part of that tradition. Uh, and um, we don't know more than that, but this is actually quite a lot because behind uh, behind Yosef Hayun, we have a lot of other figures, and uh, that's it. Yes, yes. Um, now, I don't know if if you know uh, if you've looked into this. I know the Rebbe of Hayun we have from him. Uh, there's actually a new edition of his Tehillim and his commentary on Yecheskel. And I, I, I also there's like a paperback I have on Esther, but there's a he has commentaries on 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 Navi so Nach. So, are there any similarities between him and Abarbanel? Do we see any? Do you ever are between the two? Yes, yes, no, a lot of similarities. No, I, I would say that we don't know the personal connection, but there is no question that Abarbanel is a pupil, in at least in a spiritual sense. Of uh, of Rabbi Yosef Chayyim, of course, there are also not only similarities; there are also differences. But basically, this way of approaching uh, a text with a long uh, agdama, with these questions, sfekot, and so on, this comes from Rabbi Yosef Chayyim. This is clear. Um, Abravanel expanded it even to a Baroque style at the end of his life. You know, it was not only six questions, but sometimes 20 or something like that. So I, I, I guess that Rabbi uh, Yosef wouldn't have done that. But, <laughs> but yes, yes. Okay, so one other uh, uh, small uh, biographical fact to, to ask you on before we uh, go on to his writings, really, is that um, his grandfather, who you uh, alluded to, uh, someone who I believe converted, I think uh, Ben Sio has an article, extensive article on this. So maybe just to talk a little bit about that uh, interesting fact. Yeah, so um, there are two conflicting uh, texts. On the one hand, we have this prominent rabbi praising Smuel Abravanel for uh, first supporting a rabbi, him, but also for his uh, learning and uh, even dedicating his book to him, trying to, you know, to explain him to be as, as good a Jew he could be as a court Jew. And that's the, that's the basic, there are some passages about that. And so, and praising, uh, saying that when he had time, uh, he would learn. He would learn uh, Jewish sources. Um, 
And on the other hand, uh, by the end of the 80s of the 14th century, we have an other uh, Christian sources explaining that he uh, became um, you know, a royal treasurer of, of the king uh, and uh, converted and stayed there for a very long period. Um, so there are, uh, there are many explanations for that. Uh, Yitzhak Beer, the great uh, historian uh, of Sephardic Jewry um, or Iberian Jewry, uh, said, you know, this is this first wave of conversion, um, which is not motivated by uh, either um, riots or uh, religious or uh, ideological uh, pressure, but people that want to to save their position and to, you know, out of uh, very uh, secular motives. And, uh, and then uh, uh, Netanyahu in his uh, famous article explained that this is not exactly true. Uh, this is not a cynical uh, conversion. This came out of uh, uh, a fight between the big machers of the of the civilian communities, and um, as you know, uh, businessmen uh, tend to fight against themselves, and they were using their connection to the courts uh, to, uh, you know, to harm uh, each other. And this is basically the explanation that at a certain point, uh, Samuel Abravanel was so much attacked by uh, leaders of this community and so that he uh, moved to the Christian side. So this is uh, the uh, Netanyahu explanation out not so much out of cynicism, but uh, more out of uh, dissension or out of strife in the civilian uh, Jewish community and especially the elite. So that's the, that's the explanation. But of course, the, what is interesting is that Abravanel um, mentions sometimes his grandfather as part of a lineage of prestigious lineage. So he is, is in some way covering this conversion. And on the other hand, is very much aware, especially in his episodes uh, to uh, his friend in Italy about the possibility of conversion. He sees it as something almost natural in the sense that he's, uh, you know, uh, the daughter of, of his friend, Yechiel da Pisa, converted to Christianity. And he writes him uh, two letters, actually, about this uh, topic and uh, try to explain him that this is part of Galut, you know, this is part of exile. Uh, so we see that uh, and he wrote also extensively on, uh, on uh, conversos. 
So this topic was very much in the back of his mind, that's for sure. Yeah. Okay, so something I was going to mention later, but I think it'll go well here, is that your book, uh, so one way that it differs from Netanyahu's is that Netanyahu's is almost like two books. It's like the biographical, historical part of him, and then the intellectual, his writings. Yours, uh, you mixed, I mean, you can talk more about this, but it, it's it's got the biography, but at you know various parts of his life, he wrote different things. So you address each book, each thing that he wrote at that time period where you are. So it's like a, that, that if I'm saying that properly. So, you know, maybe just you mentioned some of the writings, but just give a brief overview, perhaps of his writings, you know, what they're about when they're written. I mean, one, some of the ones that we did, we discussed some, they don't have to go back, um, but just, uh, you know, and, 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 and if you don't, we can also discuss, get into, you know, like you said, Atarazi Kanem, his first book that he wrote um, and what that's about a little bit. I told you before we started recording that there's been this renaissance and a barb and a lot of things have been published. As far as I know, I don't think there's a new edition of it or it's in print. And that's the first one that he wrote. It's just interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, actually, the Renaissance of uh, of printing of uh, Abravanel's uh, writing concern only the biblical commentaries, but not the texts that are more philosophical, in the sense that they are linked to uh, an interpretation of uh, Maimonidian uh, passages and sources. And because this, uh, so this is this is the reason why Ateretskenim, but also other tracts of Abravanel uh, did not deserve until now uh, such a renaissance. Um, so what is interesting, maybe to give just an, an example of why I believe that this approach is better, um, the problem with the approach of Netanyahu <clears throat> is that you have a kind of uh, schizophrenia. On the one hand, Abravanel seems to have the wildest life you can uh, imagine. And on the other hand, he's the boring, uh, the most boring uh, writer. So the he, he succeeded in 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 his in history and failed in literature. That's basically uh, the or in philosophy. Uh, I think that uh, this I understand when it is written a few years after the Shoah and you know basically uh, in the middle of uh, the building of the state of Israel that maybe Abravanel was not the kind of figure that was needed at that time. Um, but when we look at what the people uh, of the 16th century thought of Abravanel, they just made 18 uh, prints of his book in one century. Uh, they quoted him, they translated him the, 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 in the 17th century into Latin. So actually, the, the the people were quite ecstatic about the the, the writing of Abravanels. So my my first my first uh, my first uh, approach was this doesn't fit the reception the first reception of Abravanels writing, and also this doesn't capture 
uh, why Abravanel was writing. You know, he if he was so successful as a businessman and a politician, why uh, why should he write? And I tried to understand why Abravanel used in his career writing. And um, I um, will give you an example. For example, the Ateretskenim. He, um, in the 60s, we see more and more contracts and privileges that Abravanel received uh, from the king, from the nobility. He's more and more involved uh, in commerce and in politics. And yet, he writes. So what, what is he trying to achieve there? And I think that what he's trying to achieve there is a self-understanding of his own position at the court, at the community, and more broadly in the religious history of his own people. And this is, Ateret Skenim was all, 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 all the time dismissed as something that is not good enough and so on. But actually, he's, he's providing a cosmology and a theology for a man like Abravanel, explaining, on the one hand, um, the providence uh, in ancient uh, Israel history, the end of providence with exile, and this period, inter intermediary period, where Jews are uh, basically facing two kinds of influence, um, what he called astral influence, fortune, uh, political, what we would call nowadays political, sociology, cultural influence. And on the other hand, a kind of a religious um, 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 continuity of the providence that is now uh, in some way veiled and that is preserved through, um, through religious practice, through the Torah and so on. So he, he uh, he sees their attention, which is very much his own tension, uh, and he is trying to put this tension in a broader vision that Israel, on the one hand, is beginning from the heart, let's say, uh, the in, uh, God's influence over the land of Israel and so on, and then is moving through the world farther and farther away from God's direct influence and from the Eretz Israel, but there will be a, a movement back. Uh, so the role of figure like Abravanel is to be, and he has a lot of cosmological discussion there, like a substitute uh, from um, divine influence 
for a period uh, in which uh, Israel is not directly under God's influence. And then there is a place for people like him to preserve the possibility of a later conjunction that will happen with uh, Messianism. So this is, this is actually a very interesting uh, work if we take into account the, the life of the author and the way that he is uh, engaging with his education to make sense out of a religious sense and theological sense out of his own life. And this could this is an exercise that I did with different uh, works of Abravanel. I'm not I'm not going to bore you with more example, but this is just an example. Right, which is all in, in, in the book. I, I I would mention that actually almost 30 years ago, um, there was a new edition published of uh Mifalotelakim. Of, which is a philosophical work. I, I guess it, it, it's out of print because it's not interesting, like you're saying, or to people. Reish Amana, I think uh, that that one, there is, uh, Barilan uh, University Press has a new one, but uh, you're right. The, the one on the Marinavuchim is still in that old print. It's not, uh, it hasn't been redone. And um, yeah, so the other one I, I think we didn't mention um, of his writings is uh, the Messianic one, the Messianic trilogy, which, which is new. There's two editions, actually. You can get one from Chorev and you can get from uh, Oren Golan, this black, uh, they're like an old black cover. Uh, his, his, he, he, so there's two new editions of those works. So maybe talk a little bit about those. I know, you know, we could just touch on them here already, you know, his, 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 his messianic writings and, and, and messianism and the, the whole scholarly opinion on it. I know you, there's a lot devoted in the book and we're out of order here, but okay, we'll just uh, talk about it a little bit here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so messianism was always there in Abravanel. So that, as I, as, I, uh, as I mentioned, but there is no question that after uh, 92, after the expulsion, it came to, uh, for a period to the fore, especially not exactly after 92, but after uh, 94 or 95, where it was the beginning of, um, with the beginning of the Italian world wars, which will last uh, more than 50 years, you know? And you have to imagine, you know, um, the fall of Constantinople, uh, the, Spa uh, Portuguese, the, the fall of Granada, um, the, um, of course, the Portuguese expansion and the discovery of new roads to India, uh, the wars in Italy, the wars between uh, between Venice and the Ottoman Empire, and this this is just a few examples. And of course, the discovery of New India or uh, later uh, the New World, you get a sense of an accumulation of 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 novelties, of catastrophes of wars, of changes. And, and at a certain point, uh, Abravanel 
like I, I, uh, I tried to explain with his own situation at the court, he's trying to make out of it uh, a new apologetic for Judaism. You have to imagine that it is not uh, real fun to move from Castile and Aragon to uh, Italy and then the Ottoman Empire. Actually, it was quite horrible and very difficult as far as we can understand from the sources. And you have to have very strong uh, faith in Judaism, in the future of Judaism, to be able to do that. Um, that's one aspect. And Abravanel developed very much uh, an approach of messianism where he's saying, oh, you know, these novelties just give me a new gaze on messianic Jewish sources of Daniel, for example, especially his famous commentary on Daniel. That's, he said, before the people uh, had not the same uh, perspective on what is said in Daniel. Now I have a new perspective. Okay, we, 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 we could say that is, this is not really true because it is based on the Sefer from the 12th century, um, uh, Bahia and so on. So it's not completely true. It's true that there are a lot of sources, but there is something true in the perspective, I think that Abravanel feels that he is in a new period, in a new time. And he wants to catch that and the role of Judaism in this new period through Messianism. So he's trying to make sense of what we would call now the early modernity of modernity through Messianism. Uh, so bringing these changes, these tensions to the fore as, uh, you know, as the stage for a messianic uh, transformation. This messianic transformation did not happen. He had, he had a lot of calculations, but he knew that, he also said that, I'm, I'm doing a lot of calculation, but I, I'm not sure it's true. Uh, I'm doing messianism because I feel that through messianism, uh, there is this explanation, Arabim, I'm bringing a, a certain sense of uh, Jewish history and uh, God's history in this moment. So that's, that's basically what he's doing. Uh, and he's very much involved in that, uh, but in the late years of his life, especially uh, in the 14, 1495 to his move to, his move to uh, Venice. And then there is a question, uh, in Venice, he, is he moving to something else? So I'm hinting in the book that there is another model, not only the uh, messianic model, um, yeah, you know, uh, 
messianism has always very, very appealing, it's very strong, it's very figurative, uh, destruction everywhere and so on. So it's very strong. But uh, in his, mo in his uh, commentary on Bereshit, uh, which he thought that it was his major work, according to himself, that's the best of Abravanel. Uh, there, there is another model which is not so much messianic, and is more uh, what we would call, what I call, uh, Sephardic elite, Sephardic elitism. That means that Jews constitute a kind of elite of humanity that is degrading uh, from uh, a higher stage to lower and lower stages. Whereas uh, Israel, through Torah and uh, providence, is uh, connecting to, is remaining, is remaining connected to this first natural earlier and uh, uh, divine stage of humanity. And then is disseminated into the world but as a kind of uh, a moral, a religious elite into the world. And of course, within the Judaism, Abravanel had not, not so much respect for Ashkenazic uh, Jewry. Uh, so he thought that basically... Uh, uh, what comes from Spain is uh, that's the that's the thing that imports a little bit Italy and that's it. Uh, and um, so there is this notion that uh, Jews are fighting against time, uh, and uh, whereas the humanity is degrading, uh, they are. Uh, in a sort of conservative fight against time. And I feel this is not contradictory, of course, at, at the end there will be messianism, but it is less apocalyptic than the, the works that he wrote before, you know, that where you felt that, you know, another two or three years and the Messiah is there. Uh, and sometimes uh, he was also accused of seeing himself as the Messiah and so on. And um, so I think that there is this tension in the, the works of Abravanel, messianism, but not only messianism, and also a lot of pragmatism. You know, he, even when he was writing messianic books, he was still doing politics, was still doing trade. He was not forgetting uh, our world. Right, and I think uh, should, uh, his his trilogy of uh, Meshicha messianic works is Mayone Yeshua, Yeshua's Meshicha, and Mashmi Yeshua. Um, like I said, there's two different new editions. If anyone's interested in them, and um, in your book, I will just I'll just reference it because we won't, won't take one of time really. That you you discuss the scholarly opinion of how to interpret them and how you interpret it, and there's there's plenty on that in there. Uh, something I think is worth uh, touching. I mean, is messaging his style, on, especially on Chumash. I mean, you mentioned how he just starts off with questions. I mean, it's famous, uh, famous jokes been said about that. How you know you can just get stuck in the questions, not get answers, you fall asleep. But uh, it's 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 
I mean, talk a little bit about you. I don't know if you want to talk a, a little bit about his style that he takes over there. It, it really, I guess, on Chumash, it's probably the same on, on Navi. All the all the commentaries, really, right? Yeah, exactly. I think that the Bravenel uh, began very close to a mixture of Sephardic Iyun and Christian scholasticism. Um, also in the scholastic, you have this uh, tradition of questions of, uh, of uh, that you have to expose uh, the different views and the tension between the views. And you have it also in the Sephardic Iyun, uh, a little bit in the spirit of Kapanton, Rabbi Yitzhak Kapanton, where if you are able to take as, as much position uh, as possible, you are nearing a divine approach to the biblical text and trying to overcome uh, something that would be a human perspective. And uh, that's a very deep uh, philosophical idea that is in the Sephardic Iyun. And he was very close to that. He is quoting a lot of sources. He is quoting a lot of uh, Jewish scholars, sometimes also Christian scholars, a lot of Arabic philosophers. And he is also, unfortunately, uh, from a moral point of view, uh, also plagiaring a lot of scholars from his time especially uh, Yitzhak uh, Arama, but still from this uh, same perspective, trying to bring as uh, a little bit the state of the art. Um, and another aspect of his, uh, of his uh, uh, hermeneutics is that he... He, he views always broader sections of the Bible under generally a problem. One or two, several problems, but generally one or two problems. So uh, he divides the scriptures into narrative units uh, linked to an ideological or a, problem or a philosophical problem or a, narrow, a psychological problem or a theological problem. And that is uh, he, this, what is called this parshanu uh, drushit, this homiletical uh, uh, approach of the text. And I think that's very typical of a Bravanel. Um, and makes also uh, his appeal and his modernity in many sense uh, because he is trying to approach uh, the Bible as a series of problems uh, that concerns the Bible itself, uh, that concerns the Jewish history, but that concerns also his time. Uh, so he's capable to move uh, to involve the biblical text in a wide range of uh, uh, of cultural, philosophical, literary topics, 
making the Bible uh, living again in some way. Uh, and, um, and, uh, and also there is something encyclopedical in, in, in his writing. Uh, you, you really get a, a sense of almost all the Sephardic, and not only Sephardic, but uh, uh, important writers uh, from Sadia Gaon to his own time. And that's, that's also quite amazing. This had to do with the way he was writing. As far as we know, he was not handwriting. He was dictating to a masquer, to a secretary. Uh, and uh, we have manuscript where there is um, uh, the transcription of what he was saying, and then he's, uh, he's editing that uh, afterwards. And uh, he used a lot of, of sources he had already used uh, in one commentary in another commentary. And this helped him to build this incredible work a little bit out of what we call copy and paste uh, nowadays. But uh, at that time, this was, this was actually quite uh, novel and very uh, compelling. Right. Okay. So there's a bunch of, a few things I think worth uh, getting back to. Um, first of all, just mention that, like you said, he did quote Christians and other non-Jews uh, in, in his commentaries. Also, I think it's worth bringing up that he does at times argue on Chazal. I mean, he's not unique in that. There are other Bavarshim that do that. I know one example off the top of my head is he says Daniel was a Navi. The Gemara and Megillah and F. Gimel says that he was not. And he says, no, he was. And he, he you know, so he, I don't know if that made people not learn it or, like I said, he's not unique in that, but he did do that. Uh, something else that you brought up, I think that we should discuss, that your book does discuss, is the accusation of plagiarism. Uh, this is a, a bit of a problem, and this is a, 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 a heavy charge, and this is leveled by Yerbisch Rama, Yakeda, his son, Rameir Rama, who uh, also wrote uh, with commentaries. He has a uh, scathing letter that uh, you you, tra- you translate and include in your book where he really attacks uh, the Abarbanel, and there's also Rav David Messelion, Rav David Messelion's son, also uh, levels accusations. So let me talk a little bit about that and what you have to say about that in your book, but about the letter of Rabbi Roma and what you, uh, you know, let's talk about it a little bit. Yes. Uh, first, uh, let's imagine uh, the expulsion and the move from um, the yeshivot and the uh, rabbis and also intellectuals like uh, Abravanel from a very old setting like uh, Iberian Peninsula to something that has to be built from scratch, more or less, new Sephardic uh, communities uh, in at the beginning in the Mediterranean and maybe later uh, in uh, other parts of the world. What was known before? Uh, you know, you had uh, yeshivot, you had rabbis, 
uh, that were known and has to be now uh, collected and has to be used again and made accessible. And this is the situation that happened in Naples. Let's imagine there are, you know, I, I, I would like to have to be there, to have been there in Naples in 92, 93, you know, you, you had quite a, an interesting bunch of people there. Um, the, the entire Abravanel family uh, and uh, Itzhak Arama and a lot of uh, other scholars there. And you have to imagine also that you have print, you have now new, not only the manuscript circulation of works, but also printing. And print will decide more and more about the fates, uh, the fate of works. Uh, and Abravanel uh, is described in the letter of Meir Arama as a coming on a regular basis to the Arama uh, house. And uh, learning from Arama, which was really, really very old, uh, let's say uh, about to die. Um, and, um, and also reading the manuscript. And um, he is very, is described as well uh, as the welcomed and uh, as someone who has power and prestige. And um, he's very efficient in his learning. And afterward, we discovered that uh, with the printing of Abravanel words, uh, there are lots of passages from Yitzhak Arama. And to a point that Yitzhak Arama, by the beginning, was accused to be a pla to plagiarate Isaac Abravanel because no one could imagine, you know, that Abravanel was plagiarating. He was a big man. He was the big scholar, and so on. And uh, actually, he was, uh, you know, he was a merchant. He was uh, he was very efficient, and. Uh, and here you have a little bit of a, a, a technological clash. Uh, Arama, even today, if you take the prince of Arama, it's not such a pleasure to read the work of Arama, although he is not, uh, not less than a Bravanel in the content. Uh, but I don't know, the print was not really good. Uh, he has no, you know, Abravanel had 80, 18 uh, prints in, uh, only in the 16th century. And you have to imagine afterwards. So, and Arama, uh, so there is this, this, this tension. Arama uh, was, Abravanel learned a lot from him. And they basically shared the same problem, and I think that is how to um, produce 
a new kind of apologetic of Judaism. And this was especially acute after the expulsion. And Abravanel uh, was very uh, clever to understand that he could make use of passages from Arama to serve his own agenda, which was very close to the agenda of Arama in many sense, not so much on each, but on this, uh, uh, on this uh, uh, will to keep the importance of the Torah, to, to keep the, the rabbinic framework of the community and so on. And, but on the other hand, to engage this question with a relatively open and modern or up-to-date um, justification of that. And, uh, and Abravanel uh, simply used it. I don't know. Uh, for Abravanel, this is really a problem. For us, this is just history. Uh, it's not the first plagiarism in history. It's not the first on the other hand, I think it would be exaggerated to say that Abravanel ha had nothing else to say than what is written in uh, Akedat Yitzhak. You know, it's, uh, so, so we have to find, I think that's also what fascinates me in Abravanel. Also, the, the good things and the, the bad things, uh, we can learn quite a lot also from that. Um, in situation of uh, of exile, uh, of you have a you have a responsibility to save Judaism. He did it in some in a certain way, but at a certain price also sometimes, uh, and uh, and it's good that Meir Rama wrote this letter. It's really important. And as for uh, Messer Leon, Messer Leon is attacking uh, Abravanel for his scholarship on Maimonides, saying basically that he doesn't understand anything from uh, Maimonides because he, ha he has more uh, he has more and more criticism against Maimonides, and uh, he has uh, yeah he's proposing new ways. And a, criti a critique of Maimonides in many spots. And um, this has to do with new intellectual trends uh, at that time, in which it appears more and more than the philosophy of, Abravanel, uh, of uh, Maimonides was uh, based on Aristotelian assumptions that were more and more attacked in uh, contemporary philosophy. And uh, for example, Or Hashem, Shekreskas is already doing that, but Abravanel is continuing this trend uh, with other sources, uh, Platonic sources, Stoic, uh, Stoic sources, and many other sources. And it brings, he was always obsessed with Maimonides. He never uh, abandoned him, but he's bringing something new, something fresh. 
And uh, this was challenging for people that were in the strict, stricter uh, Aristotelian framework of studying uh, uh, Maimonides and more broadly, uh, you know, Arabic philosophy and uh, Averroistic philosophy. And that's the the beauty and the problem with Abravanel. You know, he he's an eclectic thinker. He's taking a little bit of everything everywhere. You know. <laughs> yeah. So um, one one final question on his writing, and then as we wind down, we'll, you know, we can obviously talk about his writing for hours. You know, there's so much of it, and it says he wrote so long. But is is you know, you have a whole a chapter we won't discuss about his commentary on Malachim on Kings as a response to the expulsion. And, you know, how much did he really, do we see references to the expulsion in his writing? I know in his Haggadah and Zevach Pesach, he has a lot of uh, discussion on that. So we may talk a little bit about, uh, you know, his, his writings and, you know, post-expulsion references he makes to the expulsion. As Abravanel is a major source, even today, uh, on the expulsion, because he tells in a very rhetorical way uh, the story of the of the expulsion. Uh, first, why there was a decree of expulsion. It's very interesting that he said that the reason for the expulsion was the conquest of Granada and the search of the king, but the king and the queens to thank God for the conquest of Granada, which was, which was finishing what is called the Reconquista, the, 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 con- the conquest of the whole entire uh, Iberian Peninsula from Muslims. They wanted to thank God for this victory. And how could they thank God by offering the conversions of Jews as a reward to God. So this is the the theological and political interpretation of the decree of expansion. If we look at the decree itself, it, it says something completely different. It says that the decree of expulsion is coming from the troubles that the Castilian kings had uh, with new Christians, converts, what we call conversos, or or Maranos, if you want. Um, And basically, they, they couldn't deal with these uh, new Christians because they were already bad influenced by Jews and so they had to severe the connection between uh, Jews and uh, and new Christians that's the explanation in the decree almost no mention of uh, of the the victory but we know that this decree was was made just a few weeks after the victory. So I think that Abravanel, in some way, is seeing something very deep. He's saying, okay, there is now a shift. Uh, And Jews 
are now losing their ancestral position uh, within uh, the kingdom. So that's one text, a very influential text, very, and he always returned to, in almost all these writings, after uh, after um, 1492, either in autobiographical um, uh, introduction or in messianical visions, he integrates a lot uh, the expulsion. Generally, uh, messianic in messianic terms, this is part of uh, a movement of return of the Jews, what I spoke about uh, in uh, Ateretskeni. You know, Jews spread, went far, far away from the center. And now this shift from uh, the fall of Constantinople to uh, the Italian wars is actually more and more bringing the Jews less and less connected to their ancestral community and bringing them in a traumatic way in a kind of movement that will bring them back to uh, the land of Israel. So that's the second. And um, yeah, and the third is what I call this uh, this um, uh, Sephardic elitism or Sephardic nostalgia, um, building this notion that while you are leaving the Iberian Peninsula, you must remember that you are the science of the greatest community. Jewish community in history and that will play a central role in the in, in, in Jewish history and building this sense of exclusiveness of, of Sephardic elitism is very important uh, in the text of uh, Bravanel. So I think you have these three kind of uh, responses to uh, to um, to the expulsion. What would you say is the writing that most embodies his worldview? And 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 as a takeoff on that question, or you can pick whichever one you want to go with. Really, is it, I mean, it's a similar. They're not really the same question, but I'll throw them into two, and you can figure it out. Is somebody wants to? If someone hears this or reads a book, or your book, another book, and says, "Okay, I want to learn a little bit about Abarbanel. I want to pick up one of his writings." Like I said, it's pretty easy to read. What would you? What would you recommend that is a is something is a, a work of his that they should pick up to read? Mm-hmm. I think that for me, I, there is no objective uh, judgment about the 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 about the work of Abraham. I think that his greatest book is the commentary on the former prophets. Uh, this is really an amazing achievement. Uh, mixing a lot of uh, fascinating aspect of his thought. 
But Abravanel considered uh, his commentary on Bereshit to be uh, his greatest achievement. Um, if you want uh, uh, something, a summing up of his uh, philosophical uh, approach, not too long, and then Ateret Skening is surely the, the, the spot to start with. And um, I, 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 I think that also a, the messianic works, uh, especially uh, Mayanea Yeshua, is a really amazing work, uh, mixing a lot of uh, different aspects of a bravanel. So I don't... I, I I would say Perush on Nevim Rishonim, but I know that when I'm saying that, I am presenting maybe a more uh, kosher or uh, side of a Bravanel, while you have more wi- wilder aspect of his works that are not really comprised, uh, that are not really contained in this book. So it depends uh, what you like, uh, of course. But uh, yes, I think that the three peaks are Nevim Rishonim, uh, the Mayanea Yeshua, and uh, Bereshit, uh, commentary of Bereshit. Right, you also referenced Atarat Zikanium. I think when I had Professor Lowy on, we discussed the problem a little bit. I think when I asked him, I think that's what he, he said. Just two uh, quick questions about your book. Um, first of all, it's a translation from the Hebrew. So is it an exact translation or did you redo or add anything? No, no, we, 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 we it, it's not a direct translation. We really try to enlarge the, the book and uh, bring in new aspects. And sometimes also I correct myself uh, uh, where I, I, I thought that this was not uh, accurate enough or simply wrong. And um, and so it's. I, I think that it brings really uh, to the fore uh, my newest uh, research on uh, on uh, Bravanel, and uh, it's in English, so you, you don't you don't have on the one hand the, the original sources, but on the other hand, uh, it brings a lot of translation of sources of the from different background and i think no no i it's definitely something new and also uh, with a different intention uh in abra in hebrew i try to give a sense of abravanel as an early modern figure for the israeli public because it's not completely clear what is uh, an early modern figure for the Israeli public. In uh, in English, I tried to make Kava Bravanel a meeting point of a lot of different uh, readers coming from different backgrounds. Uh, of course, Jews with different uh, interests, but also non-Jews. And uh, I think uh, Abravanel is really a meeting point for a lot of interest 
and I hope you, you will enjoy the book and, and try to, to find your way in, in Abravanel and, and beyond. So if someone reads English and Hebrew, they should read the English one, essentially. Yes. Okay. And as well as I should, I'll put up the link to the book in the show's notes. Um, the cover of the book has a famous portrait, uh, a famous picture. Uh, it's depicting a famous scene, I believe. Do you want to just uh, tell people what, what they're, in case they look at the book and they're like, wait, what's going on? What is the cover? Yeah. So the, 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 um, the the book uh, there is in the um, there, I just want to remember the name of the painter uh, yeah there is in the um, Prado Museum in in Madrid uh, a work that is not always uh, exhibited by Emilio Frances uh, which is basically uh, describing a legend that we have in Abravanel and in other Jewish sources, but also in Christian sources, mostly in Christian sources. This is a moment, you know, uh, there is, the decree was crafted at a certain moment, but was published like a month later. And there is always this question, what happened during this month? Jews were trying to abolish the decree. It was not known until, it was still possible to change the course of Jewish history. Abravanel said that he met three times the uh, the, the Catholic kings. But we have another legend from the Christian side saying that there was a moment uh, in which uh, the... Um, leading figure of the new inquisition um, Torquemada was sensing feeling that the Catholic kings were not completely uh, sure that they wanted to complete the expulsion and then he met uh, the Catholic kings and he had in his in his jacket a crucifix and he said you are selling uh, Jesus and a second time by not expulsing uh, the Jews um, and receiving for uh, this abolishment of the decree a lot of money from the Jews and this is the this is the scene of the picture and now you see on the picture uh, uh, a Jew from behind. You are not, we. This is you see. There is a uh, there is a Magen David on the on the hat, and um, so you see a Jew. Who is it? We don't know. It could be a Bravanel. Uh, it could be a. It could be. Um, uh, someone else 
uh, important in the period. Uh, but it's a beautiful picture and uh, it's a very interesting moment of suspension where you get the sense of also the third figure that was not mentioned in Abravanel, which is the weight of the Inquisition in the decision of the expulsion. Actually, this picture gives quite a, a better description of the reason of the expulsion, which is the, the greater and greater influence of the Inquisition in the royal policy of the Catholic kings. Okay, obviously there's much more that we can discuss as long as we've gone. Uh, it's, it's quite a lot, but uh, people should read the book. Uh, I just want to finish off with uh, one last question. Was, are you working on anything currently and uh, what is that? Yeah, I, I, am, I, I am working on a new uh, project involving uh, also Abravanel. Um, so this would be, I, I hope, a new book on, which focuses on three aspects of, uh, of the thought, uh, but brings in, in contact with broader trends in the, in the 15 and early modern periods. Uh, one is about his perspective on uh, Portuguese expansion beginning of the Portuguese empire, uh, his views about empire, uh, the beginning, his contribution to biblical criticism and his reception uh, in the period of Spinoza. And the third aspect is the role of the concept of freedom or the notion of freedom in the new apologetic of Judaism that he is producing. Uh, so these are more uh, cultural and philosophical essays on aspects of his work. And uh, I'm also uh, quite active in uh, modern uh, Jewish philosophy, uh, uh, finishing a volume on the figure of Gustav Landauer uh, a Jewish anarchist from the 19th and 20th, early 20th century. So that's what I'm currently doing. Okay. Thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it. I really want to thank you uh, first, Nachi, uh, uh, and uh, really it's, uh, it was a pleasure to discuss with you. And uh, you brought so beautiful questions, and also you you seem to be passionate by uh, Bravanel. So thank you so much. Thank you, my pleasure.